Dr. Jose Saldivar with another episode of the Way to College podcast. When I started out in this journey, I, um, you know, I wanted to share. I wanted to share the experiences of folks, of professionals that were doing amazing things, but really to get at the details of how one goes from point A to point B. And so today, today I've asked a friend to join me, invited a friend to join me, because I think, you know, I think he's got a wonderful story. And it's a story that when we finished college, since, you know, the, the work that he started doing after college, um, I've kind of, you know, lost touch. And, and so I'm not aware of, of where, he's, where he's at now and the work and what has gotten him there. And so I'm looking forward to this conversation. So, Gustavo, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Hey, good afternoon. Yeah, my name is Gustavo Perez. I am happy to say I've worked in education, education technology space for 20 years. Um, really am passionate about the work we do. But, you know, more than anything, I've stayed in this space because education is just so important to me. I, I think, you know, that that's something that we all share here as part of this conversation. But, you know, it, it really, for me, is all about the fact that our family went from homelessness to all my siblings and myself, you know, being college graduates with successful careers, um, you know, within that the span of one generation because of education. So, you know, for me now as a family man, I'm a happy father to four children, uh, an absolutely, you know, loving husband to a wife that I don't deserve. Um, but, the conversation becomes even more relevant for me now because I think about what my hopes are for my children to accomplish, given you know the the advantages you know I've been able to provide, we've been able to provide as part of taking that next step. Um, so for me, you know, that, that's really what defines me is this just passion for what education can do for our gente and the short of the short span in which it can affect lives. But you know, it really comes down to issues of access and equity. That was beautiful. That was beautifully said. <laughs> um, Gustavo, I ask all of my guests if they had to go and and um, identify a starting point for mm-hmm. their educational journey. What's that starting point for you? You know, I, I I've thought about this you know a lot because you know I I grew up in East Palo Alto, which you're very familiar with, ten minutes away from Stanford, yet worlds away, and you know. The expectation was that I would go to a community college that I really didn't know anything beyond that. And I was very fortunate in eighth grade that I had a teacher by the name of Barry Applebaum, who I still you know speak to now. And he was a Stanford grad that actually decided to teach in Ravenswood Elementary. The school doesn't exist anymore, flood. And he was my eighth grade teacher. And he took a liking to me just because of the fact that I was one of the few kids that, you know, didn't throw something at him, uh, quite <laughs> honestly. I was just, I was a good kid, man. I was a good kid in school because, you know, otherwise my dad would have would have whooped my butt. That was his expectation um, was that, you know, I'd always come home with straight A's. So I, you know, I was very much, you know, by the book and, you know, and respected my teachers. And uh, he took a real liking to me. And towards the end of my eighth grade year, I was selected as a valedictorian. And I was asked to write a speech keeping Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech in mind. And it was the first time I'd actually ever read it, despite having, you know, grown up in East Palo Alto. And, you know, I really struggled to connect to its academic 
concepts. You know, mm. the, the words are so profound when you actually start digging into them, you can't take them at face value. And Mr. Applebaum kind of spent some time with me, you know, refining what my speech would look like, helping me understand that speech. And, you know, at the end of it, you know, I gave him something that I was actually pretty proud of. He looked at it and he said, Gustavo, I know you're capable of more than this. I know that, you know, you mentioned that, you know, that you would love to go to Stanford like I did. He's like, I'll tell you right now, you have the potential, but this is not your best work. Sent me back to redo it. And it was the first time anybody, one, had called me out on the fact that I could do better and done so from a place of, I know you can achieve more. Mm-hmm. You know, and not only that, but framed it within the concept, you know, con- context of, you know, you mentioned you want to go to Stanford, you know, where I went, that's the only school we I'd ever heard of. Um, and it was the first time I really kind of said, like, maybe this is a possibility for me. <sighs> that's a great story, man. Um, so, Gustavo, let me let me ask you, I want to, you know, your father, you said if if you weren't a good student, right? You said your father wanted straight A's, right? Expected a lot from you. Tell us, what is it that your parents did? Tell me about your parents. Yeah. So, again, one of the reasons I got to know Stanford, you know, despite being that close, is because my parents both worked at the same hotel while I was actually in school there. Um, my dad was actually the janitor and my mom was the, the housekeeper. And it, it was a hotel for transients. I mean, it really, like, it was almost like a halfway house type setup, right? And... Uh, it was strange because I almost grew up there since uh, Ravenswood couldn't afford to provide middle school for everybody at that time. It was basically if you needed it. So every summer I would go to work with them just basically to keep me out of trouble because, you know, there were just other influences they were afraid I'd get into. Um, so I started going with them every summer and, you know, they'd always let me help. My dad would always make me help my mom because, you know, being the kind of place it was, there was some nasty stuff, man. And, and I remember one time I actually went, you know, to find him on the third floor and he was uh, on his hands and knees. Somebody had literally, you know, gone to the bathroom and then spread it on the walls. Oh, wow. And uh, he, he, you know, he said, you know, come here. He's like, I want you to see this. Like, I'm cleaning shit. So you never have to. So that's why your job is to do good in school. And, you know, that for me hammered in was just really the idea that, you know, they literally are cleaning shit for us not to ever have that option. So that kind of really cemented in me that, you know, it it wasn't something they were just saying. It wasn't something that, you know, that, you know, was expected of them to be, you know, for them to say. It it was a sincerely held belief that they were doing this, that these sacrifices they were making were with the intent of giving us an advantage. So our job was school. And and I worked ever since I was a kid, man. I I worked as a dishwasher at Stanford. That was the first time I'd actually been on campus. Um, But that was always secondary. Like it was a privilege to work, not an expectation. If I didn't get straight A's, I couldn't have a job because that just was not going to happen in our house. And my mother was the same way. You know, she actually was a teacher in Mexico. Um, she only finished eighth grade. My dad finished third grade in Mexico. But with that, she was a teacher in Mexico. And to see, you know, that kind of background where, you know, she was a respected young woman in Mexico and now she was a housekeeper with, you know, crackheads you know and you know we actually found three bodies i remember while i was with her people that had od'd and all kinds of really crazy stuff there i mean uh just incredible disparity so it really was both of them but for her having had that opportunity to taste professionalism if you will in mexico as Mm -hmm. a teacher even with that your level of education really set in her mind that you know she wanted so much better for us and 
you know, I, at that hotel, Craig Hotel, which doesn't exist anymore, they knocked it down, as you, know, you can imagine. Uh, the Craig Hotel was a learning, a, such a profound, gave me such deep learning opportunities I would never have had, man. I remember there was one lady that used to tell my mom, like, you know, that, you know she said she was stupid because she was working for $5.50 an hour or $6 an hour or whatever it was, because, you know, she could go outside with a panhandling sign and make, you know, $20 an hour. And that same woman actually had a daughter my age, man. And uh, again, the disparities between having supportive parents and parents that aren't, you know, other kinds of issues, but she actually started pimping her own daughter wow or you know better or worse and actually yeah. offered her daughter to me at one point and you know like that stays with me because it's like look i had my parents here doing this blessing their asses and yes the money was not easy but they were always drilling in me you would go to school you will do better and here you had you know the the other side of it where a parent not only was not supporting you but was pushing you into you know a, a life that you know Absolutely. You just had was going to have a terrible outcome. So uh, for me, that place really solidified so many of those ideals of why education was important and why it would elevate us beyond where we were. I can imagine. You know, um, my my father took me to my father did auto body work. So he took me with him when I was in in fifth grade. And from then on, like every that's what I did. You know, he was and he I think the same thing he wanted me to see. Like, I think for him, the lesson for me was he wanted me to see the kind of work that he did and to for me to recognize that I had choices. Absolutely. And and, you know, he he went to college for a little bit. And then didn't continue and said, talk, always talk to me about the challenges and whatnot. But he, he always wanted to reiterate the choices. And, and I think for me, it didn't take long for that to stick and, and to give me that perspective and to recognize, like you said, the privilege that you had when you're, when you're working. Um, so I, I appreciate you sharing that story. And, and I, you know, we were both in Hermanos there at Stanford and, and I th- you know, I, I didn't know a lot of that. I mean, I, th- I think you shared a little bit with us. And so for you to share that with us right now is thank you. That was just oh, absolutely. Really you know, a lot of it is in, you know, this probably is what a lot of your students deal with. I always like to say that I've got a story, but so do you. So does everybody else. We're just not yeah. good about sharing them. And that was my problem while I was at Stanford with everybody is that I thought like there are so many people that come from good families that, you know, that, that you know, are generational, have generational wealth and, and you know, that, you know, have have such tremendous networks. And here I am, this kid from the hood whose you know, parents literally are, are janitors and housekeepers. And I've got all this other drama on the side. So I really try to keep all of that as much as I could away from, you know, my peers, because I, in my mind, I, I never thought like they might support me. I never thought the system might support me more as a result of it. I always thought they're going to look down on me and be like, see, that kid doesn't belong here. Um, and that's something that I think, you know, I thought about all the time. Yeah. Let me ask you, Gustavo, cause you know, you talk about your, you go back to, to this eighth grade teacher, right? Mr. Applebaum. And the, so the, the, that experience with him, but then also combined with the lessons that you're getting from your parents and from working, Going through that, having those experiences, seeing these things, being exposed to these things, was there ever any doubt for you? Like, because I, I can imagine you, you know, you, you mentioned it that students that might be listening to this might be thinking, I've got a story, but 
I'm not comfortable telling it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe my background isn't doesn't allow me to be successful. I know I can't see myself being successful. While you're living this, could you see yourself being successful? No, because I didn't have a framework within which to define what successful looked like. So for me, success was having a job that pays more than my parents. You know, that, that was pretty much it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like so many of our hermanos were on path for engineers or, or pre-med or, or uh, law school. And, you know, like these are these big titles and I was just happy to graduate, man. Like I, I I already thought about, you know, like all the debt I'm going to leave with, like, man, like that's like what my parents make in, in two years, let alone, you know, like now take on more debt. And, you know, yeah. I, I figured out that the Stanford financial aid piece myself, you know, I, I went and picked up a FAFSA a book from the library and figured out what that was because my parents didn't speak English, let alone, you know, know how to fill that out. I've been filling out their taxes since I was 14 years old. So, you know, it, it was one of these things where I, I knew enough to you know, get these things done. But I reached a point where I was like, look, I can't afford to go any more than this. And maybe down the line, but for now, like I've got my degree and what's going to, you know, what looks like success for me is just having a job that pays more than my parents. Yeah. I, I didn't really envision like a career or, you know, I, I think so many times people have the misconception, like, you know, especially now that I've gotten to work in the college board in other organizations that are related to admissions, as you know, like the moment you say a place like has a brand like Stanford or Harvard, you know, people automatically, Oh, you're going to do something big. And it's like, it creates this unnecessary like expectation in yourself because you don't know what that looks like. And then you're trying to, you know, keep up to like, keep up with this expectation that you don't even know, you know, you can't even define for yourself. Yeah. Uh, were you in my class today? <laughs> that's, that's what I was talking about with some of my students. I was talking, you know, I was talking to them about, about yeah, about that brand and going and 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 uh, and not feeling like I think because I think like you, I felt like I just want to graduate. Like for yeah. me, it was just about graduating. I didn't, I didn't have any illusions about going to to law school or, um, I mean, eventually I went and got the PhD. But but when I was finishing up, I, that wasn't that wasn't on my radar. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was, you know. Oh, no, no, I was going to say, I think yeah, we, we share a lot of those similar traits. And, you know, I'm also the eldest in my family. So that came with its own set of responsibilities. So, you know, again, when you define, you know, what success looked like for me, it was helping my younger siblings graduate high school, you know, and helping open the door for them to go to college. But, you know, as you probably remember, because uh, my little brother was a, was a little badass, they came with a lot of drama, man. And, uh, like, I, it was crazy because I remember being called out of econ, you know, during the during the final. I actually failed that <laughs> final miserably because of it. But my cousin David called me and he said, "Yeah, your brother Ricardo has got some beef with some guys at Town and Country Village. You remember across the street from uh, from Stanford, some kids from MA are going to shoot him." So like I, I left in the middle of, of a final man and uh, I ran down there and I literally got in front of these two guys. I'm like, look, you know, y'all think you're just shooting some gangbanger, but look, I'm a grad, I'm a Stanford student. If nothing else this is going to get you guys the kind of press is going to get you guys arrested for sure. You know, if you shoot me, so you got to go through me to get to him. And my brother was just like livid at me, just like, you know, he was one of these guys that was like, if this is what I'm going to, you know, if this is how I go, this is how I go, you know, just the, that typical, like, all I'm going to do with my life is be a, a banger and represent, you know, represent the set. And in my mind, I was like, hell, I'm over here at Stanford, man. Like there's options. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I carried that as well. So like, I always had in mind, like, well, how do I help them 
get out of this life. So one of my big goals when I graduated was just getting a job so that I could help my parents move out of East Palo Alto. And we wound up in San Jose and Berryessa, which is a, a, a really nice area. But it took me having two jobs, my dad having two jobs, and my mom having a job to be able to afford that mortgage out there. So like I said, you know, I think there's, there's all these levels of stuff that we carry, man, that, you know, it's hard to just define success because, I mean, I'll tell you, like, for me, it was a proud ass day the day you know, his uh, hard head ass and his twin sister graduated from Pali. Like, that was that was a huge moment for me, man, because I, I took a, a lot of pride in that, too, because, yeah. uh, you know, it, same thing, like my, on the first day of work at the college board, my sister Maida got into a fight and got arrested. So oh. I had to ask Jim Montoya if I could take some time off because my sister was in, in uh, county jail or Julie, whatever it was. Uh, but I mean, like, it, it's just stories like that. They like really helped open the, my eyes to like the fact that man, like we come with a lot of bags that we got to overcome before, you know, we find success. And now both of them are successful professionals, you know, making, you know, good money, supporting their own families and opening the doors to, to their kids. You know, I'm not sharing as much of the details of their background, but I mean, I, I you know, generationally man the difference you 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 make you know like i said it, it's just incredible well and 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 you know I, and it starts with you right it started with you and and the lessons that your parents gave you and and for you to be able to take them and then one to it sounds like to really ground yourself right like like i mean and 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 knowing you i mean one thing i can definitely say is what i did know about you is you were incredibly grounded when you know when we were in college you were incredibly grounded you knew exactly where you were from what you were about um you know and 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 you know i definitely appreciated that about you and, and i and it, it's good to see right that that f you know making sure that that you showed them that they had options was always al also part of that plan how because I'm, I'm sure there are kids there are young people listening that are wondering finding themselves maybe in a similar situation or or tough situation how did you do it? How did you get to Stanford? And then how did you graduate, man? Yeah, no. So uh, it was interesting because uh, same thing. After eighth grade, uh, there was actually a, a write-up in the paper about, you know, the valedictorians from the different schools in Ravenswood that year. And a high school, a private high school, actually reached out to see if I'd be interested in, you know, visiting the campus. And that eventually turned into, you know, the high school I went to, Crystal Springs Uplands, which was in Hillsboro. So every day I would take the bus and the train and then the bus again from East Palo Alto to Hillsboro, which, you know, you talk about a dichotomy of worlds. You know, Hillsboro is probably the, the richest zip code in California, at least at the time it was in Northern California for sure. Um, and, you know, like there were, the school was literally a mansion surrounded by other mansions. Um, if you've ever been up there, it, it's literally like a mansion built in the twenties that they turned into this school campus and it's surrounded by other mansions. Um, so I, here I would come out of East Palo Alto riding two, two buses and a train to get there. And, you know, immediately everybody looked at me as like, well, this kid's here, you know, definitely, you know, as a, as a token, as a token minority on campus. Right. And, you know, I, I just kind of, put my nose down, I think. And that's what, what my strategy was, is like, look, there's so many different influences around me. And I think about that, you know, in retrospect a lot. And like, it would have been so easy for me to take my eye off the ball. And at that point, the ball was just graduating high school. I, I didn't know, you know anything about Stanford beyond its name. 
And, you know, like I had you know, people around me that would ask like, hey, like, you know, could you have a hookup on weed? I'm like, I'll be honest, man. Like, I've never even touched the stuff, like, <laughs> you know, let alone, you know, be able to deal you some. And, you know, here I saw my friends getting in trouble, you know, in East Palo Alto for selling nickel bags and dime bags of weed. And these kids up here at Crystal Springs were like, you know, smoking heroin and had, you know, cocaine at parties. And uh, somehow I was the one that, you know, that they looked at and thought, you know, it was involved with this. Right. So I just, I, I didn't keep any kind of a social life there. I never once attended anything outside of our graduation party. Just, I, I never felt like I fit. Like I, I, I definitely knew that I was there because, you know, I was, I was a, a Mexican American kid. I was Chicano from, you know, the hood. And, you know, I, I was reasonably smart and, you know, and I could hold my own on at school. Um, but, you know, that was the reason I was there. You know, they needed yeah. some diversity. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't take offense to it because, you know, they saved me $15,000 a year in tuition even back then for a high school, right? Um, oh. So, yeah, I just kind of, you know, always focus on the fact that, you know, I, I get up at 5 a.m. to catch the first bus, you know, get ready and catch the first bus, and then go to Caltrain and then catch another bus. And, you know, I get through the day, you know, start doing my homework on the bus and the train and just do it every single day all over again, man, without, you know, much time for anything else. And for me, that provided a lot of comfort, just knowing like, look, I don't have any of the extraneous stuff, you know, on my radar to distract me. My job is, you know, go to school, come back home, deal with the drama that comes with being in East Palo Alto at that time and family associations. Um, and that's enough. So that, that was kind of like how I got through it, man. I just kind of put my nose to it and just put one foot in front of the other and just kept thinking, you know, another day goes by, another year goes by. Um, and thankfully, my senior year, when everybody started talking about, you know, college, you know, I, had, I was already working at Stanford as a hasher, you know, and dishwasher in the kitchen. I'm like, well, I work at a college, so, you know, I'll probably pick up an app. And I did. And we had a really great high school counselor at, you know, at our high school, private high school, as you might imagine. But again, this, this fear of asking for help, you know, I, I think a lot of us have this mentality, like, you know, I, I've got the world on my shoulders. I got this, I'm going to do everything. And I was honestly afraid to ask for help. I, in my mind, I thought, you know, this is something that's an extra charge or whatever. So I asked her to send transcripts. I asked her to help correlate, you know, my applications, which was, you know, pretty much, you know, the extent of what I asked for help with. Um, and it was the only place I applied to. I figured if I didn't get into Stanford, I would just go to a community college or the military, which was, you know, I had 60 flyers from every damn branch of the, you know, the armed services, you know, which is to me, I felt like it was a blessing. I was like, look, if I don't get into this place, you know, across the street, I'll just pick one of these. I don't even know. I'll pick one of the, one of the branches of, of the armed forces. Right. Um, but I didn't feel like I had a lot of other options. So I was really fortunate that you know, I did have the grades because, again, you know, I had that reinforcement at home um, and was you know, a good tester. So I did well on the SAT and I, and I got a spot at Stanford. Um, and, you know, that really was in many ways a lucky accomplishment because had I not, I said nothing wrong with the community college path. But, you know, as we know, for kids that um, you know, are first generation with uh, without a lot of extra support, that's typically not going to end um, in a four-year degree. I know statistics have changed a bit since, you know, since I was a kid and since we were both kids. Um, but, you know, statistically speaking, that's not, you know, a recipe for four-year success. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, so this high school, fish out of water, right, type of experience, I can imagine it was probably the same experience at Stanford. Oh, uh, absolutely. 
absolutely. <laughs> but it, it was different in the sense that, you know, it was big enough Mm-hmm. that there were several fish out of the water. And I, I think that like the hermanos group is kind of a collection of those, you know, people that kind of like feel like, damn, like I don't necessarily fit anywhere else. Well, this is a place that kind of feels like it was made for us. So yeah. for me, like I so said, even though I didn't open up to a lot of people, Nolan and me, you know, he's my compadre now. He's actually a godfather to my daughter, to my eldest daughter. Like he was the guy that kind of stuck with me. It was like, I'm going to dig deeper. And, you know, uh, I thank him for it now because like I said, even then, like I was part of the Edmanos, but I always kind of uh, unfortunately kept it kind of superficial. Mm-hmm. Because I, I always felt like Stanford could be taken away from me, even as a senior. I always thought, you know, I'm one, you know, misstep from things happening. You know, we, uh, you know, we actually had two drive-bys on our house you know, while I was at Stanford. Again, stuff, stuff that you know, I actually told Jim about, but he, he really didn't know how to even address that, right? Like, how do you address that? Uh, so, you know, he just told me, you know, do you do you want me to help you find extra housing on campus? I'm like, that that's great, but the reality is like. I can't just leave my younger siblings and be like, yo, that's, you know, I'm over here now. I'm good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there were all these other like factors that like made me feel like I can't really open up to, to Jay. I can't really open up to these people because, yeah, you know, one, they're going to think less of me. And two, I always felt like I was one mistake from it all, you know, being taken away from me. Yeah. Wow. You go to Stanford and you know, we've all got to pick a major. What do you think? What at, you know, when you're coming in, what are you thinking of major? Oh, that's an easy story, man. So, <laughs> again, I was at the public library and I picked up a book that said the top paying majors, and that's how I picked international relations. Nothing else, no clue. You know, didn't talk to anybody about it. I just said it, it said it was like the top non non techie because I, I I didn't have you know a good grasp on math or sciences, um, you know, coming into Stanford, like I, I graduated my classes, but, you know, I always, you know, it, it was tougher for me. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, all right, non-techie, the highest paying majors, in international relations. That's what I'm going to do. You, um, you make it. And not me. I don't want to say you made it right because you didn't escape Stanford the skin of your teeth, right? Yeah. You, you know, yeah. you're a successful student, right? How? <sighs> yeah, I got you know, I, a 3.67 GPA. I still remember you know, seeing that on the diploma. <laughs> man, yeah. You know, so so you do well academically, graduate from a stand from Stanford. And, um, you know, it's interesting because was it was it right after Stanford that you started working for the college board? Yeah, was, immediately. What, how did how did that? Well, I, I should actually clarify. There was like a six month gap. So okay. when I graduated from Stanford again, you know, like many of I'm sure your listeners like like, you know, many of our hermanos, I didn't have a network. Like my job was, you know, get through school, graduate. And, you know, when other people were asking for, you know, their parents to introduce them or open the doors, I, I had nothing. So I actually grabbed the newspaper and the only thing hiring because 2001 was, you know, pretty close to the dot-com uh, bust and, uh, you know, those high paying jobs that, you know, just three years prior were paying, you know, kids a hundred grand fresh out of, you know, fresh out of Stanford. Now we're non-existent. So my first job was actually six months selling subprime mortgages um and like i i written my i I ground my teeth and like just kind of did it uh just because i needed a job and i kept looking for something else and you know just by coincidence jim actually got recruited to the college board and uh you know he we just kept in touch and he offered me a job 
So the kid who is going to the library, picking up a book on the FAFSA, picking up a book on how to pick a major, now all of a sudden finds yourself at the college board. <laughs> what, what were you doing at the college board, Gustavo? And what was that like? Well, I came in as an assistant, you know, just, you know, straight up, like I was just helping. Uh, that's actually interesting, too, because I came in and uh, they were hiring two assistants. One was an executive assistant for Jim and his assistant, Chris Avoli, uh, both incredible people. Um, and then one for John Stoller, who was a, you know, a guy that you know, was working in K-12. And they had me and a white guy. And Jim basically, you know, having just been new to the organization, basically turned to his assistant, you know, the, the person that was directly under him um, and said, you know, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. You want to hire? I'm biased. I like Gustavo. And she actually picked the other guy purely because, you know, he had on a tie. He was a white guy. You know, he, he didn't have the same level of education, which is fine. You know, like if you don't need it for the job, that's fine. That's not a reason to judge you. But um you know, the guy actually was let go less than three months after for uh, drinking at one of our conferences and bad mouthing everybody. So that, that's that's something else that I, I was brought up with very well is, you know, this sense of decorum um, and being polite, perhaps too much, you know, and perhaps being too modest. Yeah, that's something that, you know. I've struggled to balance because I want my kids to have that modesty. But at the same time, I feel like it's held me back so many times because whereas other people talk themselves up, I kind of expect my work to reflect the caliber of my person. And that's not always the case as you know, you and I know in the real world. So yeah, I I was an assistant. And after that three months, I became an executive assistant. Um, And then eventually as part of that actually took on a director role within the K-12 sector and the higher ed sector later on. So I got to know both sides of the house and it, it was really cool for me to get a behind the scenes look at how so many colleges and universities made decisions about how they targeted students using things like the PSAT and student search, which I had no idea existed, um, how the SAT really was leveraged for data. And, you know, and that data was sold off in so many different formats. And just understanding that connection that exists between, you know, K-12 and higher ed and having insight into the data about the disparities that exist between the haves and have nots, and then having data correlated directly, you know, showing that proportionality between those that are more affluent in these zip codes have this much higher of a percent of ending up at one of these top 20 schools. That was that really fascinating for me from a data perspective and also just from getting to know a lot of the players, you know, and it's the space has changed tremendously as, you know, has a lot of our world in the last 20 years. Um, so a lot of the directors of admissions that I initially met from, you know, some of the more uh, well-to-do universities carry certain attitudes with them that, you know, weren't the most amenable to equity and access at that time. And it, it was interesting to see that there truly were gatekeepers and, you know, that, that a lot of it was based on their perceived value of somebody because of the school they went to or the cur- courses they took not taking into account like things like the struggle that that you know student may have had to have had to take on to be able to get to the same place as the student that grew up in a more affluent neighborhood the resources that were available to the more affluent student and just the hurdles that you have to overcome right so um i i really it opened my eyes to the fact that you know 
when we talk about you know the disequity that exists within admissions, the admissions process, something that now I think is being talked about in a much more tangible way. You know, I, I got to see it 20 years ago um, from a very early stage where you know, a lot of that stuff was still spoken about, you know, in 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 whispers, but you know, pretty loud whispers. You know, when we're in, when we're at Stanford, um, so I, I I did a lot of education classes and stuff, and so I, you know, read read things like that, hear about things like that. What was it like to be privy to those conversations? Like, especially knowing knowing this, what you struggled, knowing what you went through, knowing that, like, your situation might not have been the same had you not gone to that high school. Mm-hmm. What was what? What were you feeling like there? What was that like for you? Could you clarify that a little bit more? How like? Um, I mean, I I don't know. I if I'm if I'm in in that space and I'm hearing these things and I'm mm. learning these things. Got it. Got it. Yeah. What are you? you know, what are you feeling? <laughs> it, it's funny because um, it's what I. It was a feeling that I'm that I was very familiar with. You know this. Biting your biting your tongue and clenching your teeth, and not speaking up, not saying what's on your mind because you know it would paint you as the kind of person that's a troublemaker. And you know, having grown up, you know, between yeah, I said he's Palo Alto, where yeah, I was trying not to be a troublemaker so I wouldn't get you know caught up in gangs and get shot or get something something else happened there. Um, you know, here I was just trying not to get in trouble, not to lose my job. And there was always this fear of being perceived as, you know, somebody that's trying to stir shit up. And, you know, now that I'm an adult, I'm like, my God, I, I had opportunities to, you know, really, you know, talk about these things. But, you know, this this fear of like, man, if I lose this job, my parents can't afford to pay the mortgage, you know, really just put me in that mode where it was like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I was kids in the hood. You know, we come a lot, you know, with a lot of issues, you know, and uh, like I said, you know, again, the the privilege of the position in which you are in you know uh, my kids will be able to speak up about issues like that because they hear me talking about those issues and and they know that they can do it on their own without having to worry about it impacting you know our livelihood and that's a tremendous sense of freedom that they've been given so i I hope they use it yeah i'm glad you know i'm glad you 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 frame it that way because i think sometimes i like I don't know. I feel like as a, as a as a person of color, there's almost a, a an expectation that you've got to speak up, but it also you've also got to recognize the position, right? And and what are what are the consequences? If I do like, do I bite my tongue? And if if because because I can't afford, right? Like you said, like your experience at Stanford, always feeling like you're one misstep from having it taken mm-hmm. away. I get I get that, and I feel like. I, I, I mean, I, I think I'm at an, at an age and a point and 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 a comfort level and and a security level in my position, but man, I remember when I first started as a professional because I felt that way at Stanford, yeah, you know, and like that imposter syndrome, and I always tell my students, yeah, was there was always that like somebody's gonna find out, <laughs> like like you shouldn't be here. What are you doing here, right? But like even at, at work, like you know, biting your tongue and feeling like I'm I'm one misstep from losing this job. And then, and then the the consequences are. It's not just about this job, but the the domino effect that it, it could potentially have. So I appreciate you framing it that way, Gustavo. How long were you at the college board? I was there for 
seven years or so, almost seven years. Um, and, and then from there, I actually went to the Arizona Department of Education. And that was, you know, I've always had this real drive to understand how systems work, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I didn't appreciate it when I got the job at college, the college, but it just, I just happened to get lucky into it. It was there that I learned like, oh, shit, like it's really it's fascinating to know how these things really work behind the scenes. So then I actually purposely targeted this job at the department of ed. Um, and it was Arizona because I actually, my dad had a heart attack while we were in the Bay, you know, working 16 hours a day and then driving, you know, an hour between jobs. So he was sleeping like four hours, five hours, every single day. Uh, he had a heart attack. And the doctor said, basically, like, if you want to live, you have to, cut down work. You have to find a way not to work so many hours. Your body needs rest. So again, you know, being the eldest, you know, they kind of put it on me like, well, what do we do? We can't afford, you know, we can't afford this house. So I did research and found us Arizona. I'm like, look, the cost of living is like a third of what it is here. You know, I'm pretty sure we could find jobs. So I, I, and again, you know, being the eldest and being that responsibility, my parents trusted me so much that they said, if that's what you think works for us, then let's do it. And they picked up and moved the entire family from the Bay Area to Arizona within, you know, matter of a couple of weeks. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, again, talk about having a lot on your back, right? Because if it hadn't worked out, I would have been like, shit, I moved them across state lines. (laughs) Um, But, you know, having come here, I was like, look, I'm going to target a job at the Department of Ed because I want to know how the system funds our K-12 schools. Why is there such a disparity between schools in Scottsdale and schools in South Phoenix, right? Like what accounts for that? And I really did get a good chance to learn about how federal funding and state funding work and programs that, you know, target, you know, specific populations like title one and impact aid and, you know, how all these different areas play together and things like the fact that, you know, in the hood, we have less less available to students from the local fund because we have hella more, you know, my California just came out. I apologize. We, we have a lot more uh, commercial <laughs> buildings in the hood than homes. So the, the commercial properties are, are taxed at a different rate um, than, than residential properties, which, you know, again, there's a lot more residential homes to begin with, and then they're taxed at a different rate. So it contributes more money to those school districts. Um, so getting a sense for that was also like, Oh damn, like, all right, like, where you live impacts the quality of education you're going to have. And it's not just because you're in the hood. It's literally because of the environment that, you know, that, that constitutes your world. Having all these commercial buildings around you means you're going to get less funding per student at your district. Um, And I think a lot of people don't understand the way that truly works, you know? Wow. So what is it that you were doing with there at the, at the department of ed? I was what was called a program specialist. So I was in both uh, Title Three, which is English language learners, and Title One, which is basically the fund that provides for you know, our lowest SES students, our students who are most at need uh, financially. So you know, it's the biggest source of money besides you know state funding for most school districts. Um, and as program specialist, my job was to work directly with school districts to make sure that we're using those funds uh, with efficacy, and also you know being able to report to the federal government that they use those funds in a way that correlated to the parameters of the program's intention. Um, so again, you know, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, impactful work in the sense that, you know, I'm out here motivating kids, motivating kids, but damn, if it didn't give me a good sense for, uh, an under, for the, uh, an understanding of how education really works. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I, I, I think, 
I imagine um, to be in that position, to recognize, right, the opportunities that you have, but to see how, how again, yeah, how it works. Um, I feel comfort. I, I would... I'd sleep better at night if I knew there were Gustavo Perez's in every department of ed doing that across the country. I would feel better about schools, you know? Uh, ah. And sadly, that's not the case, man. Like, yeah. having worked there, like, the people that are in charge of our most precious resource, man, our kids, typically are only there because they've been there long enough or because they knew somebody else that, you know, they worked at the Department of Ed. Most of these people, you know, have no clue about the impact of their work really. And that was kind of eye-opening for me, you know, in a lot of ways. And, you know, like it's definitely, it changes, obviously. Arizona is a state where our superintendent of public instruction is elected. So, you know, it varies between, you know, if we have a Republican leader um, or, you know, a more progressive leader in in that position. Um, But I, I got to see, the behind the scenes kind of way that the Department of Ed works. And I, I really walked away feeling like shocked in many cases that our kids' lives, educational lives, were in the hands of these people that, you know, really saw this as nothing more than a job. You know, something that they just checked into and checked out of, you know, bureaucracy at its finest. And, uh, you know, that's a sad truth. I, I can't imagine that's just the case in Arizona, man. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't imagine that either. Um, I, th- I think that's that's probably a similar story in in most states. Yeah, um, that's not to say there, there weren't great people. There are, but you know, yeah, it, it's hard to fight a whole system. Like, uh, in yeah, I, I think that's probably the biggest issue for a lot of these people that are really well intentioned in places like the Department of Ed is that they're fighting an uphill battle. Yeah. Gustavo, what are you doing now? Um, you know, at some point I realized I had to make money, right? Uh, so I actually <laughs> leveraged a lot of that knowledge and I made the move into um, sales, into education technology sales, where you know, I, I've always picked organizations who I believe, you know, whose values resonate very clearly with mine. And, you know, there's ed tech solutions that are uh, used throughout our system. You know, not the most exciting line of work, but, you know, it's interesting because, most people will be surprised by how much education technology is really teaching their kids and how much is used in the classrooms. And, you know, I've always looked at it as if, if that is going to be in place, I'm going to make my, I'm going to make it my priority to make sure that I make sure it's used well mm-hmm. and that it's used with equity because technology really has the potential in education to be the great equalizer, but by default, right. By its very nature, it's a divider, right? Because technology in and of itself is a have or have not yeah. know, luxury. And, you know, I remember, I keep forgetting the name of the movie about the kids in Phoenix Union. They made it with George Lopez, where basically they went to, I think it was a Harvard robotics competition uh, with their own built, you know, machine. And all these schools were there, you know, with like huge budgets. And they were literally shoestringing this thing together. And that really is the case, you know, in a lot of these situations, right? Like, and it's fascinating to say, like, you know, I have an impact in these kids' lives. And that technology that, you know, we're trying to promote, I'm going to make it my mission that if we're there and the school district is going to use it, I'm going to find a way to leverage the resources we have to make sure that those kids get access to it and find ways to use it. You know, and it's something that I think 
we still have a long way to go on, but yeah. I feel really good about being in a position where that's part of every single conversation with a school district when they you know, say, hey, we are interested in using this or that solution. And my first question always, you know, and I'm notorious for it, is like, how are we going to make sure that the implementation is equitable for your most uh, needy students? Um, so, yeah, like I said, it's been very good to me. A lot of it, I feel, is because of that, you know, that ingrained hustle that, you know, that my parents you know, instilled in me. Um, so I, I just got that naturally, just being unafraid to say like, well, I need to pick up the phone. I need to, you know, do this or that. And uh, it, it's been good to me. It's provided, it's allowed me to provide a good life to my kids, you know, and to have the kind of lifestyle that I want. I've always, uh, one of the things I've always feared is growing to be too successful. And I know that's a weird thing to say, but at Crystal Springs, the high school, I had one friend whose dad was the ambassador to Hong Kong. And he had a mansion in Hillsborough, you know, two blocks from the school. And it was him, his older brother, and then their staff. The mom and dad lived in Hong Kong, you know, and they saw them maybe, you know, two or three times a year. But, you know, they had all this money. They had literally a mansion to themselves and any resources they wanted. And, you know, I, I don't anticipate I'll be that successful ever. But I, <laughs> the whole point is to say, like, I don't ever want to get so successful that I lose sight of my kids or that I feel like my career is my focus. My career, my focus is to make sure that my kids take that next step. You know, we always joke, yeah. especially as Mexicanos, yeah, like you take nothing in your hands but dirt when you die. That's cool. I, I understand that. But what I leave behind is my legacy. And that's my kids. And, yeah. you know, I want to make sure that all the time I have, that most precious time is ded dedicated to being there for them, helping them and, you know, opening those doors. Gustavo, just as you, I, I could sleep better knowing somebody like you was in the Department of Ed, having been on the school board, having had made decisions about getting you like getting technology and and now you know being at the university and having to shift online and you know I, I see it right the, yeah. the equity issues. I'm glad somebody like you is in that room. I'm glad somebody like you is thinking about not just it's not just a sale, but it is about. It is about how do we how do we leverage how do we leverage so that those most in need can have opportunities too. <sighs> Gustavo, man, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. This has been this has been awesome. Um, I certainly eye opening for me. Like I said, I, I I you know we went to school together and I knew a little bit about you, but to Not hear fun. your story, yeah, <laughs> yeah, to hear your story, man, um, and the work that you're doing now, something you should definitely be proud of. Any final words, final piece of advice for our listeners out there? Yeah, Jay, I mean, one, first of all, thank you for having me, Matt. I, I, as I said at the start of our call, man, the, the work you're doing is incredibly important because, um, you know, as I said, we all have a story to tell. Well, most of us just aren't good enough at telling it. Um, and, and I think if I leave your, your audience with anything is don't be afraid to tell your story. And even more importantly, don't be afraid to live your story. And if you need help, don't be afraid to ask for it, because like I said that that was my big issue is, you know, and you, know, you talked about it, you know, that that imposter syndrome and, you know, that leading you to not want to access the same resources that your colleagues are dipping into because you feel somehow that you're not worthy. Um, and, and that's a huge mistake. I always think about, you know, how much 
more I could have done with my time at Stanford if I hadn't closed myself off. Um, and, and that's the thing I, I would love to leave your audience with is just, you know, live your story, be, be unafraid of that story um, and, and really look around you and make the most of the resources that, that are there because they are there for you. And whether you feel that or not, like they are there for you if you'll take them. You know, whether that's tutoring when you need help or, you know, talking to somebody in the financial aid office about, you know, not not being able to come up with you know, with the money to pay tuition uh, or, or anything else, man. Just being unafraid to you know, reach out and say, hey, I need help because all of us have been there. And, you know, it, not all of us should have, go, should have to go through that same struggle of trying to have, figure everything out on your own. I think that was perfect. <laughs> that was that was awesome, man. Gustavo Perez, thank you. Thank Absolutely. You for sir. joining us. Um this concludes another episode of the Way to College podcast. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe, like, and uh, and please share the podcast with uh, with with your friends. We'll see you next time. Thank you and bye bye.